Welcome to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Sunbury Press publishes print, electronic, and audiobooks under a variety of imprints and categories available worldwide wherever books are sold. And now your host, the founder and CEO of Sunbury Press, Lawrence Knorr. I'm in the Sunbury Press studio at the historic Christian Baker Farm near Boiling Springs, Pennsylvania. My guest is Harry Dietz, Jr., the author of Our Father's Journey, A Path Out of Poverty. Harry, welcome. Well, thank you for having me, Lawrence. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. So, obviously, Harry Dietz, Jr., and the book is Our Father's Journey, so I know your father's name is Harry Dietz, Sr., <laughs> just to confirm that. Um, how'd this book come about? Maybe uh, you could kind of give us the uh, synopsis of what it's about. Well, back in 2018, my mother died in in May, and my father and my mother were married for like 71 years, and uh, they had spent a good bit of their life together. And after my mother passed away, my father was really lonely, and uh, we tried to connect with him and talk to him about different things in uh, in life to, to keep him interested in things. He's a very active person to begin with, but he uh, continued to uh, miss her, as you would expect. Sure. And he, he, he would talk occasionally about his life. My brother, sister, and I really didn't know my father that well. He was always working. My mother was a homemaker. She was with us all the time. My father was always out doing newspaper work, taking pictures for the uh, county coroner, the state police, uh, newspapers in his retirement. So we really didn't get to know him very well, uh, even though he was with us a good bit of our time. Uh, we, so we were sitting in his in his living room one day uh, later that year in 2018. And I alone, I had gone up to visit him and he was talking about his life as a child. And I was just mesmerized by how interesting some of the things he was talking about. We knew he had grown up in poverty. We knew his family struggled. His father was hurt in a coal mining accident and uh, they, most of the family had quit school to help support them. Uh, but we didn't really know a whole lot about how difficult his life was. And so he was telling these stories, and I said, Dad, you have a great story here. Why don't you write your life story? Well, he was in his early 90s, and even though he had written a lot of stories in his in his life as a as a newspaper reporter and editor he was at a point where he just could no longer organize the words and find the right words to use mm. and he he kept putting it off and this conversation that day just sparked something in me and i thought this story is going to just fade into uh, infinity and we're never going to hear it so I went home and I thought about it and I, I contacted him and I said, how about if we write this together? How about if I send you questions 
and you respond to them as if I were a newspaper reporter and you were my interview subject. And that's where it started. So we would, I would send him questions uh, by email, or when I was with him, I would record questions. And occasionally we would get on the phone and we'd talk about some things. And I kept all these notes. And that's where the, the whole story started and, and what became our father's journey. So, yeah, that's fascinating. And it's, it's, it's got to be such a treat to be able to do that with your father, uh, that he's also interested in that. And more importantly, you know, as an historian myself, knowing the historical aspects of this, this is, you know, your father being a primary resource on what life was like so long ago. So it's a very valuable as well, not only to you and your family, but also to the historic record to record something like this. And I say that mainly because you know, I'll take you back to the setting. You, you're talking about 1920s and through the Great Depression into the World War II era for the community of Shimokan, which having been up there in recent years, it's quite a bit different than it was uh, you know, 90, 100 years ago. So, you know, his memories of that, what was a booming town at the time with many different ethnicities and, um, you know, the hustle and bustle of the coal industry and railroads and so on. Maybe It was a booming town and a growing town, but he, but it also was a struggling town at times because where the, the uh, growth came from was the coal mine. Right. Uh, that there were there were also some other industries up there, textile industries and and some other things, but it was mainly a coal town, and the people who worked there were were struggling to make a living, and so, so even though the town grew and was was thriving, uh, a lot of the people who lived there did struggle, and um, they had a tough life. Well, I think life I, I would like to live. I think your father was probably experiencing the end of the boom in Shimokan. It was probably, now I'm just saying off the cuff, I don't know this for a fact, but generally in Pennsylvania and in the Northeast, the railroad's booming from about the Civil War till about 1920 or so. So he's born right at the end of that. And they're still mining coal. There's still a demand for it. But it's not what it was. So, yeah, I could see where he's he's kind of coming on while things are starting to slide. But he's seeing the maybe the last gasps of it, the last indications of what it was. That's and, all true. And then add in the Great Depression. Yeah. And everything, uh, what, what was there went downhill even farther. So what would you say as his son doing this process and asking him these questions and what he can recall? What was some of the what was the most remarkable thing about his his youth that really stood out that is like so different or remarkable compared to today? Was there anything like that? Well, a lot of what he experienced some of his friends did too. And his brothers and sisters, they had the same kind of uh life growing up. My father had some kind of a drive in him that I still don't understand where it came from. Because his father was a coal miner and his mother did domestic housework, so there was not there wasn't there wasn't a lot of oversight and direction given in the house because they were always out there working. Somewhere, my father got this drive to make something more of himself, to the point that when he met our mother, 
he was so embarrassed by his lack of money and lack of clothes that fit or look nice. They were torn and shabby that he didn't think that he was, I guess the best word is worthy of her. And he didn't think that he could convince her that he could provide for her in a life together. So he needed something to set his life in a better direction. And what he, what he decided to do was at, at the end of World War II, he quit school for the second time. He had quit earlier to uh, help earn some money to help his family survive. But he quit school uh, in his junior year and joined the Army. And that drive to, to do whatever it took to improve himself and improve his chances in life uh, was something that I just, I didn't fully understand the magnitude of that and why he would do that. Or, I mean, now I do, but at the time it was, it was something that I just had no clue what our father's thought process was and what he was looking for in his life. And it turned out to be, uh, quite an experience, uh, qu- quite a good decision for him and for our mother and eventually our family. I'm talking to Harry Dietz Jr., the author of Our Father's Journey. We'll be right back. The BookSpeak Network brings you history through biography. Sunbury Press Books founder and publisher Lawrence Knorr hosts this program that takes a look at pivotal figures in American history, including the famous, the infamous, and the not-so-well-known. Lawrence is joined by Joe Farrell and Joe Farley, authors of the Keystone Tombstone series of books, available at sunburypress.com. History through biography, here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm talking to Harry Dietz, Jr., the author of Our Father's Journey. Harry, uh, I do want to just backtrack a little bit to the Great Depression in Shemokin. Was there anything specific about the family during the Great Depression that was memorable? Uh, Any hardship stories that stand out? Well, aside from the fact that many times they had trouble putting food on the table, uh, they had reached a point where they could not support a family of, of six children uh, on a coal miner's salary. And my father's father and mother had a friend who his mother had, my father's mother had met uh, at a farm where she had grown up near Shemokin. And this, this man was a widow and he had a large house in the community of Tharptown, also known as Uniontown and Gosstown. And he lived there alone in this big old house, and they were having trouble making ends meet, paying rent, putting food on the table. So he invited them to move in to this house with them. And that's what they did. And they worked out some kind of an agreement that eventually they could own the house by paying a monthly amount of money to him sort of like a uh, a mortgage but it, it was it was structured in a way that they could afford it and eventually they would own the house and that seemed to help them at that time 
But then things took another turn because in the early 30s, my grandfather was hurt in a fall down a shaft in the coal mine. And he injured his back and he was never able to work doing phys heavy physical labor again in his life. So what had be been a really bad situation for them became much worse. Uh, I don't know how they would have survived if they hadn't moved in with th this friend of theirs, but they were able to make a go of it, not only by living in that house, but also because my grandmother, who lived to be 102, wow. was a very strong woman who went out and did domestic work, uh, scrubbing floors and doing laundry for neighbors. And she was able to generate some income for the family to be able to provide for the children. Wow. Yes, you, <clears throat> you did what you had to do. All right. Uh, your, your father goes in the Army, and I, I'm thinking that's where he learns photography, if I'm not mistaken. So he, he shifts from this coal mining heritage, this laboring heritage, to more of a white-collar career. How does that happen? Well, when he went in the Army, he, he didn't have any skills. And he was fortunate that he had a sergeant or two that he had conversations with, and they tried to, to steer him in a direction where he might get some kind of a skill. And one of them said, what did you do? And he said, well, I, was a, I went to school, and I was a student. And the guy said, didn't you have any kind of skill or hobby or anything and he said not really and then he thought oh i fooled around a little bit with photography and the sergeant said that's what we'll put down yeah you have a skill in photography and that's what they did he was very fortunate because when he wound up going over to japan uh at the end of the war when they were uh doing reconstruction work over there, he got, he, he arrived and they put him into a unit that needed a photographer because the person who was doing that was being discharged. And my father learned the skill on the, on the, on the fly by working with a couple of uh, Japanese people who were men who were, uh, well-versed in photography. And even though he was in charge of them, they taught him how to be a photographer. And that, that was where the skill developed. And it's a skill that he has carried throughout his life. And even now, as he's about to turn 94, he still uses it every day. Now, is he digital these days or is he still using film? Oh, he's definitely digital. Now. Okay. <laughs> I just had to Even ask. though there's even though there's some difficulties sometimes, you know, at 94, it's, it's, yeah. uh, it's a challenge to deal with all the technology and sure. uh, he gets frustrated with the computers and laptops and things, but he still does it. Hey, we get, we get frustrated uh, by that stuff I know. too. Yeah. So uh, a lot of years as a photographer, maybe uh, like tell us a couple of the places he, he photographed for. A lot of what he did early on uh, were, was spot news photography, and I have, I have a number of the 
more well-known pictures in the book of things he did. Um, he took a picture at the height of a fire at St. Edward's Church uh, in Shemokin, uh back in the early 70s. Uh, the church burned down, and our father took a picture that wound up on the cover of uh, a fire magazine, uh, and more importantly to him, it was submitted for consideration as a Pulitzer wow. Prize winner. It didn't win, but it, it did receive a lot of attention. Um, the irony of that photo and what's interesting and is that when I went to work as a photographer at the same newspaper in the mid-70s, uh, or the mid-80s, I guess it was, uh, I took a picture of them when they rebuilt the church placing the new steeple on the top so it was sort of uh, a neat connection that we had but uh, that picture was a was one that was well known one of the most compelling pictures he took was right after he started in the newspaper business at a weekly paper a little boy was hit by a car outside the apartment where they lived and he grabbed his camera and went out and the father arrived and picked up the little boy and carried him to the ambulance. And the picture just has everything that you would want in, in a uh, compelling image that told a story of what had happened. Uh, the little boy survived, which was a good good outcome of the story. But uh, at the time, all these people were around them with this look of concern on all their faces. And um, it, it was just... a incredible picture so there were a lot of those types of things aside from the news photography that he did he also did a lot of work with taking wedding photos uh, he and i worked on that together and that's actually how we paid for my sister and and me to go to college uh through doing wedding photography and he did a lot of um uh, school class reunions and uh, other sports pictures he would go out and he earned a lot of extra money doing that and that's how he was able to overcome a lot of the uh, things that they that we lacked as a family he he went out and did all this extra work to help to provide some of the extras that we couldn't afford i'm talking to harry deets jr the author of Our Father's Journey. We'll be right back. Listen for the Brown Posey Press podcast, available here on the BookSpeak Network. I'm Tori Gates, and my guests include fellow authors on our fiction imprint, but also other independent and self-published writers, poets, movers, and shakers in the literary world. Listen for current and previous shows here. The BookSpeak Network brings the story behind the stories and their creators here. I'm talking to Harry Dietz Jr., the author of Our Father's Journey. Harry, uh, let's pivot now to you uh, as author of this book. But you know, you've also had a pretty storied career, and it's it seems like maybe um, somewhat in the image of your father. But maybe talk a little bit about your career. I actually did follow very much in my father's footsteps. Uh, what he started as a photographer, uh, that's what I did also. I was uh, in my between my junior and senior year of of college and 
he came home from work one day and he said, uh, our photographer is small daily newspaper, one photographer. He said, he's going out for surgery and he's going to be out all summer. We need somebody to fill in. Well, my father and I, neither one of us wanted that to happen because uh, we just didn't think it was a good fit for me working with him and ba basically under his direction. But they had a need and uh, it seemed like a good opportunity for me to learn to do something that uh, possibly I could also use later in my life. So I went to, to work as a uh, photographer for the Shemokin news item for the summer of 1973. And he taught me how to be a photographer, gave me a crash course and how to do all the darkroom work. And I went from there to becoming uh, a sports writer and then a sports editor, eventually moved to Reading to be a sports writer for the Reading Eagle. And uh, at one point in the mid eighties, decided I wanted to do something a little different. So I became a design editor and, and learned to do design work and eventually moved up through the ranks as assistant managing editor, managing editor. And, and then in 2008 became the editor in chief uh, of the Red Eagle, which was uh, one of the greatest honors I've ever had. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So you and I both worked for the Reading Eagle Times at one time. I uh, was a paper boy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. For, for several years, I'd uh, get up early and deliver the Times around the Lower Alsace Township uh, area, Pennside, Mount Penn. And, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and then uh, I did get hooked into doing the Sunday Eagle, but then I thought, nah, I like having that day off. <laughs> I don't want to deliver papers seven days a week. But uh, yeah, it, a lot of that's changed now yeah. uh, with digital, but uh, they still do. They're still doing a a print edition seven days a week. So mm -hmm. hopefully that will continue. My uh, great uncle, Arthur Grafe, wrote a Schola, a Pennsylvania Dutch column for the Reading Times for many, many years. I don't know if you've ever come across that, but uh, mm -hmm. he mentored a gentleman named George Miser. Who mm -hmm. I know George. And in fact, he's... Uh, I'm headed, He's quite an institution in the, uh, in the Reading area. I'm headed to see his lecture uh, about another local photographer. So looking forward to that. Uh, George and I have talked a bit as I was trying to get background on my great uncle since they knew each other. But yeah, all connected to the that great paper in Reading, which what's it doing these days? Is there anything left of the Reading Eagle or is it all digital? Is there still a paper edition? It, it is it's been sold it was at one time it was some people claimed including george miser claimed it was the oldest longest family-owned newspaper in the world uh, we never were able to confirm that uh, so we didn't actually make that claim but there were people who did uh, it was started back in 1868 by jessica holly who was the founder and it was passed down through multiple generations of family members, uh, much like a lot of the larger uh, newspapers, uh, the Hearst and the Pulitzers, uh, it was a smaller version of, of those. And uh, it, it eventually, a couple of years after our, I retired, it um, became, 
it continued to struggle as most newspapers are and it was sold uh, from the family and it still exists today and they're still printing seven days a week and they don't have the staff that we did when when i was the editor but they're still providing local news as best they can and and uh, it's really important to continue that that mission so was the german der adler the eagle in german i know it was a german language newspaper was that the same family same paper and they did both languages or is that a completely different it um, was there were there were um, there were the eagle and the and der adler were were two newspapers at the time and uh Members of the family split, and one took the German version, one took the English version. Of course, the German version eventually uh, went out of out of existence, but uh, the English version did very well and became a very large newspaper, actually, for a small city, uh, yeah. well over 100,000 circulation on a Sunday. And in, I believe it was in the 40s, they bought the Reading Times, so... Um, it, it was a growing newspaper and doing really well for a long time. Yeah, I know as a kid, I, I grew up in uh, in Redding, the Reading area and was always amazed to see the Reading Railroad on the Monopoly board, which reminded us all that at one time the city of Reading was quite uh, quite a town and, of course, the Reading Railroad, quite an enterprise. But Yeah, and that's a, that has a good connection up into the coal region, too, because the Reading Railroad, a lot of what Reading railroad did was haul coal down from the coal region at one time it was uh, a lot of uh, a lot of it was brought down on uh, canal boats but when the railroad went through uh, it brought a lot of coal down from the coal region to Reading and, and down on down to Philadelphia so I know uh, you, you mentioned about your sports writing and I'm really happy to see you writing a baseball book about a Hall of Fame pitcher from Shemokin Maybe you could give us a teaser on that. I know it's not going to be out for a little bit, maybe a few more months, but uh, I'm excited to be working on it. And uh, what, what can you tell us about it? Well, I'm excited to have written it. It's, uh, it's an incredible story. Uh, the man's name was Stan Kovaleski. They called him Kovey. Um, he, was, he, he entered the coal mines as a breaker boy uh, in, in, when he was about 12. And he used to, after work, he'd go home when there was any daylight left. Because they were working six days a week, 11, 12 hours a day, he'd go home. He'd set up a can, tin can on a log or tie it to a tree. He'd collect a bunch of stones and he'd throw these stones at this tin can. And that's how he learned to pitch. And his, his opportunity came eventually to sign on with a baseball team in Lancaster. And from there, he eventually moved on up into the major lakes, uh, as did several of his, his brothers. But he had an opportunity through baseball to escape the coal mines. And the story became even more compelling as, as he, as he experienced continued into into the uh, professional ranks he went out to the portland area and learned to throw a spitball and at that time the spitball was legal yeah and he was the last of the 
spitball, one of the last of the spitball pitchers in baseball when they outlawed it after the 1920 season. But the 1920 season was uh, an incredible year for him uh, because Cleveland eventually that year for the first time won the World Series. But it was a year like no other that uh, I think many people have experienced in baseball. His wife, uh, during the year, was back in Shemokin, and she died. Uh, she had been sick, but she died unexpectedly. And he left the team for about a week and a half and went home to take care of things. They had two small children, so he left them in the care of her sister, her younger sister, and went back to continue pitching baseball. Uh, that's the same year that... Uh, Ray Chapman was hit by a pitch by Carl Mays um, and died as a result of that that pitch. Yeah. Uh, the only person in Major League Baseball history to have been killed uh, by a pitch in a game. So uh, they they overcame Kobe's wife's death they overcame chapman's death and they went on to win the world series where he was the star he won three games in the world series it was it went seven games it was best of nine series and it went seven games and he he pitched three complete games harry and, and won three times we're just about out of time but i'm just going to say you're uh the, the story of Stan Kowaleski sounds a lot like the novel, and not the novel, the biography I wrote of, of Eddie Plank and uh, his exploits mm. in the World Series a few years earlier, and also another great Pennsylvania Hall of Fame pitcher, Christy Matheson. Mm -hmm. It's uh, interesting that Stan doesn't quite come up to uh, Christy Matheson or Eddie Plank in the memories of most people, so I think this book will certainly help in that regard. I hope so. I was fascinated by it. So, and the fact that we both came from the same town. Yeah. Well, Harry, we're out of time. It's been great talking to you today. Well, thank you very much. Uh, I've enjoyed it, and I, I hope that uh, people enjoy the books as much as uh, I liked writing them. We've gotten a lot of great feedback so far about our father's journey. Harry Dietz is the author of that book, and it's been great to have him. This has been the Sunbury Press Book Show. Thank you for listening to the Sunbury Press Book Show on the BookSpeak Network. Check out our website at www.sunburypress.com for our latest releases. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter to receive special offers and discounts.